We're in a series through the book of Acts, calling it Full Throttle, just to simply describe how the, the early Christians in the first century went after the mission of the church, full speed ahead, full throttle, carrying out the work of the kingdom. Uh, you know, that, that term full throttle, uh, I don't know what it conjures up in your mind. First thing I always think of when I think of full throttle is a pilot who's shoving the throttle all the way to the panel as far as it'll go, and, and that engine uh, is just cranked up at its highest speed, getting ready to lift off of the, uh, of the ground. And uh, I suppose no former pilot understands full throttle better than that sort of iconic figure, Howard Hughes. Um, Back in 1935, Howard Hughes and his team revealed uh, a brand new airplane simply called the Hughes H1 Racer after 18 months of secret development. And uh, this particular airplane then in 1935, he flew it at the controls to a brand new uh, speed record, land speed record over land, uh, and just uh, set the world on, on edge with that. Shortly thereafter, he set a new transcontinental record from uh, New Jersey all the way to the West Coast in that very same uh, aircraft. As a matter of fact, it had achieved so much in its design that it, it became the inspiration for a lot of advanced aircraft designing in the late 30s and early 40s, especially into uh, World War II. Now, while Howard Hughes really understood from an aviation standpoint what it means to go full throttle, none of his relationships ever went full throttle. He failed in every one of his personal relationships and ended up in life as an eccentric recluse. You probably know his odd and unusual story. At times, I think we Christians are a whole like Howard Hughes. We... Um, we go at so much of our life at full throttle. I mean, we are just going at it with all of our energy. But when it comes to sharing our faith, we become reclusive. Oh, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to build relationships. I don't want to get too close to people when it comes to a spiritual thing. Um, now, granted, some people are more naturally outgoing than other people, but this isn't about being outgoing. It's about being intentional. Whether you're outgoing or not doesn't mean you can't share the gospel and say, well, I, I can't get up and talk to people in front of crowds. Okay, I get that. Statistically speaking, that's understandable. That is still, on the top of most lists, the number one fear of Americans. 74% of Americans suffer with glossophobia, which is the official term of fear of public speaking. It, it, it exceeds our fear of death on most lists. Did you know that? Uh, when Jerry Seinfeld learned that, he said, in other words, at a funeral, the average person would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Now, statistically speaking, that would be true. You know, and then fear of flying and fear of spiders and snakes and such, all those hover up near the top. I guess a really bad day for most people would be flying out of Indianapolis to be the keynote speaker at a snake handling convention. Uh, you know, that, that would really put you on edge. It'd put you over the top, wouldn't it? But here's the assumption too many people make, and that is they think, to share the gospel, I have to be willing to stand up in front of a group of people and talk. Well, well, can I tell you that's probably the most ineffective way to reach somebody? Now, you know, when I get up and preach, most uh, of you who are here in the audience uh, are already believers. This is more of a time of encouragement. Sometimes it's a time of instruction. Sometimes we hope it's a time of inspiration just to give you the energy to go back out and face the world. But 
this isn't probably the best venue to explore with somebody else uh, about Jesus Christ. We hope that they learn about him when they come in here. So if you're trying to say, I don't need to do that because I can't get up in front of people, well, trust me, this isn't the way. One-on-one -on -one is the best way, or a couple with a couple. or So you sit down at a, at, a, at, a, at a table in a Starbucks or someplace with a cup of coffee, and you talk with somebody. You build a relationship. That's the best way. Paul and Silas went out on the missionary trips, and most of the time, the, it, it happened one-on-one -on -one to begin with. Uh, last week we talked about Philip. He, it was just he and the Ethiopian on his way back to Africa. Uh, and, and then it was Paul and Silas. They were in jail. And the, and the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And then down by the riverbank, it was Paul and Silas with Lydia and those who were meeting with her down there. It was small group kinds of settings, one-on-one -on -one kind of settings. That's how the church began. And every one of us can help other people come to that. Now, Paul... Um, and Silas decide they're going to revisit the missionary journeys uh, uh, that, and the churches that they had established first time around. And so they take off and they get as far as Troas uh, before God sends Paul a vision. It's a man from Macedonia in the vision who says, come over and help us. Now we got a map here I want you to see on the map. If you look uh, right above the um, sort of the, the upper side where you see Mysia, uh, there is a red arrow, and that red arrow is pointing to Troas. It's a, a little coastal uh, city there. And, and when you see Troas, that's as far as they got, you know. And they were going to go up into Mysia, and then up into Bithynia and Pontus, uh, and that direction, and establish more churches. And God came along and changed their direction, and they sailed across the Aegean Sea, uh, landed at uh, Neapolis, and from there they proceeded on to Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and then Berea, and, and down into the area of Athens. Paul made it there alone, first of all, simply because uh, they were chased out of most of these other places, and so they shuttled him off to Athens quickly, and uh, Timothy and Silas stay behind to tie up some loose ends. They're going to join him there. Um, Paul then is alone as he enters the city of Athens. Now, now understand this. The apostle Paul is a, a, a scholar. He is a knowledgeable man. He's a powerful man. He's a world traveler, but he's never been to Europe. Okay? So he enters Athens, the city of fame uh, for its philosophical bent. Uh, by the time Paul arrives in Athens, it's lost a little bit of its glory, but it's still a community of about 10,000 people. Not all that large, but it's been home to such notables as Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. And this is the think tank part of the world. And Paul walks in as a, a, a tourist on his first day, just to kind of get acquainted, just to soak in the sights and to see what it's like, waiting for Silas and Timothy. And the farther he walks, the more he sees and the more he gets ready with the gospel. Now, this is the background to the story I want us to talk about this morning, and I want us to draw out some, some important lessons. And here's the first one. Develop a plan, the plan that God has for you. Okay, not just any plan, but develop the plan that God has for you. Paul began his life in the city of Tarsus. Now, you can see that on the map. That's at the far eastern edge of the, the Mediterranean, northeastern edge of the Mediterranean there, far away from where he is 
uh, when he's in Philippi. But this particular city, and you say, well, is this really important to know? Yes, it's important to know because this shows you how God works in our lives to get us to a certain point. Saul, we talked about him last week and his conversion on the road to Damascus. Saul, when he grows up in the city of Tarsus, is growing up in a city that at one time had a population of a half a million people. It was a major communication hub. It was the place where Western and Eastern cultures met. It had been greatly influenced by Greek culture, but it was a Roman citizen a city, which means that when Saul was born, he was immediately a Roman citizen. But Saul, who became Paul, grew up in a strong Jewish family and was taught and mentored by one of the great rabbi scholars, a man by the name of Gamaliel. So this young boy who's playing on the creek bank that runs right through Tarsus there cannot begin to imagine what God is doing in his life to prepare him for adulthood. Greek culture, so he loans the language and the culture. Roman citizenship, which gives him the privilege of going everywhere. Strong knowledge of God's word. And, and God even uses the fact that Saul was on the dark side for a while. Remember, he was the chief persecutor of the church. He beat up Christians, arrested Christians, consented to the death of Christians. And so God uses even that aspect of his life to help prepare him for what he's going to do, going into the world. So when Paul got persecuted, he, <laughs> he said, oh, well, I probably have this coming. I used to do this myself. All of these things come together in his adulthood. And it's always a partnership with God. God never just does it. He partners with us. That's been true all through the Bible. God had a blueprint for a brand new world after he cleansed it by the flood, but Noah still had to build the ark with manual labor. Jesus put mud on a blind man's eye and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and the blind man had to find his way to the pool of Siloam to wash off the mud. When a leper, a Samaritan leper came to Jesus and said, I would be clean, Jesus said, well, like the law says, go show yourself to the priest. And it was while he was going to show himself to the priest at the temple that suddenly he looks down and the leprosy is gone. Peter said, Lord, I'd like to walk to you on the water. And Jesus said, well, come. Peter still had to get out of the boat on his own before he could walk on the water. Do you see what I'm saying? is that with all the people in the Bible, it was always a partnership with God. God did some things, you did some things, you did it together. God has a plan for your life. You may not have discovered it yet, but it's there. The time may not be writing, the, the training may not be complete, the pieces of the puzzle may not all be in place yet, but he has a plan. You just keep working with him on the plan. Now here's the flip side of that. God's not the only one that's got a plan for your life. Sometimes the arch enemy of the church also has a plan for your life. Satan's got a plan for you, and it's just the opposite. His plan includes doubt to make you question God's truth. His plan includes discouragement to keep you focused on your problems rather than on God's power. His plan includes diversion to make the wrong things seem more attractive than the right things. His plan includes defeat to make you feel like a failure so that you'll just give up and go away. His plan includes delay to make you procrastinate what you know God really wants you to do and be. So I guess the question is this morning, whose plan are you following? Are you trying to partner with God and follow his plan, or are you following Satan's plan? There's a plan, you know. Just pick the right one, will you? And here's another thing. Prepare for interruptions in your plan. Now, even though God has a plan, he expects us to work out a plan. Uh, Paul and Silas had a great plan all mapped out. Uh, they preached in what was Galatia and Phrygia, and then they were going to go north, remember? And, and God sent them south, and, and God inter 
interrupted them with a different direction. If you want to follow God, be prepared for interruptions. Most of the time, we don't like interruptions. But I will be eternally grateful that God sent Paul in a different direction. Do you know why? Because this is the first time the gospel comes to Europe. If God had not sent Paul into Europe, the gospel may not have made it to the shores of America 15 centuries later. And you and I might not be Christian today. We might not be worshiping here today had all that not happened. So what happened in the 17th chapter of Acts is incredibly important to our own salvation this morning. When, when God interrupts your life, it may be the best thing that ever happens to you. Uh, Brad alluded to this in his meditations earlier, uh, but we had several ladies, over 50 ladies from the Sherwood Oaks Church here, uh, went out to New York and to work on a short-term mission trip in the inner city of New York. And they came back, I talked to some of them this week, they're just bubbly all over about what happened. And, and they've got all kinds of stories about the people they met and the things that have gone on. When you talk to them, the excitement really isn't about, oh, we did this and we did that and we did this and we did that. No, it's about what happened to me, this, how this person changed my life, how this moment changed my life, and how this experience changed my life. They all came back changed because of what they did. We had a group that went to Honduras and they've come back. They've come back changed. We've got people who are getting ready to go to family camp this summer. They'll come back changed. It's not so much about what we do, it's about what we receive when we are interrupted in our normal routines and allow God to do something special and great in our lives. So, you may not be cut out to do ministry halfway around the world. Your ministry may be just down the street. Just watch for the interruptions, and when they come, say, okay, God, help me to see what you're interrupting my life to accomplish. Here's something else. When you go, teach the truth. In verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. The word distress carries the idea of infuriated. It's not just, oh, I'm disappointed to see this. Paul goes in, he's just, he's literally angry at all the idolatry that he sees in the city of Athens. And so he begins to talk, he's supposed to wait, remember, for Timothy and Silas to get there. You just stay undercover, Paul, just just stay calm. (laughs) We'll get there and then we'll do something. Paul couldn't wait. He was just so distressed he couldn't wait. So he starts talking to people, and then verse 19 says, They took him then and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was this area where all the public meetings took place. And they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're preaching or presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Doesn't that sound like the 21st century we live in? People are saying, I'd like to know more about that. That's a rather unusual idea you've got there. I'd like to hear about that. We are very curious people. We are a very seeker-oriented people today. It's a contemporary. This is why the Bible is so applicable to our daily lives all the time. And Paul says, well, let let me tell you about Jesus. And he tells them the truth about his resurrection. Truth is important to all of us. Richard Watley said, everyone, who wishes to ha- everyone wishes to have truth on his side, but not everyone wishes to be on the side of the truth. I suspect, suspect that's pretty accurate. And really, the second part is the most important question. Am I on the side of truth, not is truth on my side? It's so easy to be wishy-washy today. The challenges of being politically correct at times would suggest that truth should be compromised or even sacrificed for the sake of making others feel good or welcome. But at what cost do you compromise truth, folks? 
Adrian Rogers wrote, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than to speak falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It is better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with a multitude. It is better to ultimately succeed with truth than to temporarily succeed with a lie. Like Paul, be passionate for the truth. Don't ever compromise the truth. You will survive just about anything with the truth. Teaching the truth through your word and actions is more important than your speech to begin with. People want to see the truth in you before they hear the truth from you. Here's something else. Engage the seeker. Uh, in verse 22 it says, Then Paul stood up with, with the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar within this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now i, I got to tell you folks, I am so impressed with what Paul does here. Now remember, when he went into the city, he is infuriated at what he saw. But he doesn't go into it to this group with anger. I'm likely to have gone into Athens and say, what's the matter with you people? You got idols all over the place. Are, you know, don't, 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 don't you get it? There's only one God. Can you get your act together, Athenians? Will you please? And if you go in like that, nobody's going to want to listen to you because they're already on the defensive. Now, Paul's angry, but it didn't come across that way at all. Paul goes in and says, you know, this, this is my first time in your city. I'm, I've never been here before. And so I noticed something about you immediately. You're really a highly spiritual people. You're very religious around here. That, that, that's a good thing. As a matter of fact, I even noticed this one altar here outside the city that was to an unknown God. I know that God. Would you like, would you like me to tell you about that God? And all of a sudden, everybody's just on the edge of their seat waiting to hear, you know the unknown God? Sure, we want to hear. Paul didn't compromise the truth. He just presented it in a way that engaged the seeker. Not everyone that uh, then embraced the gospel, not everyone does today either, but no one will if we don't present the gospel rightly. Does, does the story end with, and they all lived happily ever after in Athens? No, it ends with these words in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. See, not everybody believes. But others said, you know, we, we want to hear you again on this subject. And then there were those who did believe. This 21st century is, is uh, unique. Is it a better century? No. Is it a worse century? No. It's just different. There are things that are better. There are things that are worse. But that's true with every generation and every century of living. We just have to begin to understand the differences so we can better communicate Jesus Christ. Uh, Washington Irving published a story in 1820 called Rip Van Winkle. It was about a man who went hunting uh, with his dog, sat down under a tree, and slept for 20 years. You remember the story? Now, I got to tell you, there, there are days when a 20-year nap sounds pretty, pretty good to me, all right? But Rip Van Winkle woke up from that nap and didn't know anything. I didn't know anyone. Nobody knew him. He was a man who was lost without his culture. Now, I want to understand the culture to which I minister because if I don't understand the culture, the culture might not understand me. I don't want to wake up someday and find myself a Rip Van Winkle in the 21st century. 
I want to know who we are. Now, see, here's part of the problem, too, is that those of us who were born before 1962 uh, are really out of place with this culture. This, this is a new culture altogether. Those of you who have been born after 1962, you're more at home in this culture. So, we're trying to understand you. You be patient as you try to deal with us because we're coming from two cultural distinctions. Uh, sometimes when I, when I travel uh, overseas, I'm, I'm extremely worried that I'm going to do something to offend somebody because I'll do something I'm not supposed to do in their culture. You know, cross my legs the wrong way or, or uh, you know, shake with the wrong hand. I, I, you know, you're, different cultures have different things, and I don't want to do that. Funny thing is, I'm never quite as worried when I'm at home, and I should be. I don't want to offend people in this culture by things that I do. You shouldn't either. This is home. We'd be, we ought to be on our best behavior to here, trying to understand our culture so that we can present our culture with the grace of Christ. Well, here's the last thing. Never give up. Be faithful. Even when things around you seem confusion, confusing, be faithful. Don't ever give up. Now, you'd think, wouldn't you, when Paul and Silas get this message in Troas, they're there, they get the vision, come over and help us. If God wants you to go to Troas, go, leave Troas and go to Greece and Macedonia, wouldn't you think that God would pave the way and make it smooth and make it an easy trip? If that's where he wants me, God's going to make it good for me. <laughs> Paul gets across the Aegean Sea and, and they make it to Philippi. They get thrown in prison in Philippi. So here, there, God, are you sure this is where you wanted us to go? Yes, this is where I want you to go. We're in prison. But the Philippian jailer becomes a Christian. And then it's down to Thessalonica, and people get angry there, and they start, they chase, they have to leave the city under the cover of darkness into Berea, and the Thessalonians catch up with them in Berea. Again, it's out of the city. They are flogged. They are beaten. They are imprisoned. They are, one time, Paul gets beaten so badly he almost dies. You go down through the list and you think, if you follow God, if you're going where God wants you to go, isn't it supposed to be easy? No. God just says this is the right direction, but again, you're going to fend for yourself on this one. And so Paul and Silas make it all the way through this journey. The, the gospel is planted. The church begins in Europe. But boy, it was a tough journey. All I'm saying is, when you're following God, it may not be easy. It's always right, but it may not be easy. So don't give up. American runner Gail Devers took the gold medal in the 100-meter dash uh, in the 1992 Olympics, and she won it by only six one-hundredths of a second over her top four competitors. She went on again to win gold in 1996, and she won gold in the hurdles in 2004. Now, what most people don't know about her, because she was considered the fastest woman uh, alive at that time in 1992 when she set that record and won that gold, and here's what most people don't know. Just one year before she won Olympic gold in 1992, Gail came within two days of having both of her feet amputated. She had a disease, Graves' disease, that... Uh, causes the feet to swell and the skin to pop and crack and all kinds of problems. Within two days of having her feet amputated, a year later, wins the gold medal. Who would have thought that the fastest woman in the world was the same woman who almost lost her feet? Don't ever give up. You do not know what kind of golden victory is just around the corner if you don't give up. Human nature has not changed much. 
throughout the course of history. People still desperately need a relationship with Jesus Christ. So teach the truth, but teach it with compassion. Be ready with a plan, but expect interruptions. And most of all, most of all, don't give up. You may be the only hope a hopeless individual ever has. May just be one that you reach. Each one reach one, but that one may reach hundreds. You follow God's plan. Go where he leads.